Good news and bad news. Here we go again. I stand up here ready to be stoned, crucified if necessary. But church council meeting this morning, the church council still forbade me to tell you anything. We are, I'm going to tell you some things, but not what you want to hear. (laughs) We are operating on several different fronts simultaneously in order to expand our scope of ministry in terms of a physical plant in this church. We're operating with the city continuously. We have a a very important meeting Thursday. Be praying for next Thursday. We are operating with our denomination. I was there last Tuesday downtown and uh, spoke with them about financing, funding, and uh, they told me that there would be no problem in financing any new additional purchase that we might want to make. I also asked them for a half a million dollar gift. They choked on that. (laughs) But I believe that was an instruction to me from the Lord to go to them and tell them that God wanted them to partner with us in this project that way. So be praying also about that. We will need several million dollars if all comes to pass. We have $1.2 million saved up right now. Uh, That's a dent in what we'll need. So we're operating on several fronts. And uh, at almost any moment, something could break loose. Hence the need for continued and fervent prayer. I ask for your prayer continuously, and it's very, very important, because without prayer, nothing is going to happen. Believe me, nothing is going to happen. And nothing has been happening because I'm convinced we have not been praying as we ought And because there has been other situations, other issues arise, of which I will try to point out tonight. I want to talk to you out of the book of Nehemiah tonight. We're going to bypass Romans for a week or so. And I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah... Well, let me say this. Let me put this in a historical context for you. The book of Nehemiah is written not only as a historical story, historical account of the building of the walls of Jerusalem after the Babylonian uh, exile, but it's also an account that tells us a great many things about Whenever the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan also says, let me arise and oppose. There is great opposition 
whenever the people of God arise and begin to walk by faith and to step out and take on a, a large task that would have to, anything to do with expanding the kingdom of God. You might well imagine, I, I hope you do, the magnitude of the opposition that Satan puts forth against any growth of God's kingdom. He's adamantly opposed to it. The same thing happens in this book in Nehemiah. You see, Israel has been in exile in Babylon for over 70 years. And the Persians have come and they have defeated the Babylonians, and now the Persians are the top dogs in the ancient Near Eastern world. And the Persian king gives permission now for the, uh, the Israelite exiles to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. There is a small remnant that was left there, but the vast, vast majority of the nation of Israel, if they were not killed, they were carried off in captivity. And this was part of God's judgment for their disobedience. So now the Persians come on the scene. The year is 530 B.C. There's a, there's a series of three exoduses from Babylon back to the land. The first one happens very early on when the Persians begin to rule. Some 50,000 Israelites go back to the land. One of the very first things they do is to set about work at rebuilding the temple. Very, very important because the temple is the center of all Jewish life. It's the center of the whole nation of Israel. Without the temple, they have no sacrifice. Without the temple, they have no worship. Without the temple, they have no, no thing to center their whole life around. And so they set about to build the temple. Well, they're doing pretty well until they get a little tired, a little frustrated. They turn to start building their own homes and so forth. And then the work stops for about 16 years. The temple's not finished yet. God causes two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to arise in their midst and to sternly chastise the people that they need to set about and rebuild, finish the temple. And it's finished within about four years. Nothing else happens in the city. The people settle down to their own lives for about another 60 years. The second exodus now back to the land is led by the priest Ezra. The book in the Bible, Ezra, just before Nehemiah, carries his name. Ezra brings another large group of people back to the land. And he comes and he finds the people dull, uninterested. They've forsaken the law. And so Ezra begins a big process of renewing the people, renewing the law, getting the worship and the sacrifices back into uh, order. Several years now after Ezra has appeared on the scene, we have Nehemiah. And at this point, that's where I want to begin. You have some historical background as to the restoring of Jerusalem. And now we turn to the book of Nehemiah, and we hear from Nehemiah his own testimony. This is autobiographical, and there are some lessons here for all of us to understand with respect to the building up of God's kingdom. 
That's what we are dealing with. And we can learn from what Nehemiah has to say. We're told that the words of Nehemiah, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. What was the state of affairs back in his homeland? And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now the Babylonians had done that nearly uh, 80 years prior, 90 years prior. Actually, even before that, for the 70 years of, of exile. So about 150 years earlier, the wall of the city had not been rebuilt. The gate was burned. They needed that wall for protection from all the people that lived around them. And they lived in great fear. They were very timid because they had no protection. And so they were in disgrace and in great trouble. Nehemiah says in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So right away there is a burden on his heart for Jerusalem, for his people, indeed for the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God be built up. That's the whole story. That's the whole theme of the building up of the walls. It's a picture of the building up of the kingdom of God. And whenever the kingdom of God is not being built up, it is subject to great attack. It is in disarray. There are problems, and the church undergoes great disgrace. Are you with me? Hence the need constantly for the church to be focused on building the kingdom of God, on building up the walls, so to speak. And so Nehemiah weeps, and he fasts before the Lord. You and I must have a vision for the growth of the kingdom of God. Nehemiah has that vision. Later on in chapter 2, he'll say that God put in his heart the desire to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. There's no statement here that God directly appears to Nehemiah and says, go do this thing. God has put the desire in his heart. He's grieved. And you and I might well be grieved if the kingdom of God is not going forward. And indeed, in our Western culture, the kingdom of God is not going forward the way it ought to be. We have a church that is not committed to the growth of the kingdom, by and large. We have a church that is interested more in their own personal peace and affluence, in living and being friends of the world and being accepted by the world, and not having too much persecution, not having people say too many things harshly against them because they're Christians. Beloved, we must have a heart for the kingdom. I can't say that strongly enough. And that heart for the kingdom must be reflected somehow in tears and weeping and fasting, in prayer, oh God, 
that your kingdom might grow, that your kingdom might go forward. Does that make sense? Now listen to his prayer. We can make this our own prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So are we praying day and night for the church? Are we interceding every day and every night? We're saying, oh God, strengthen your church, strengthen your people. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then... Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then he prays that God would give him favor in the eyes of the Persian king. Four months pass by. It's in his heart to go to Jerusalem. He has a vision to go to build up the the walls of the city. But he has a dilemma on his hands. The Persian emperor, the Persian king. You see, whenever you were in the king's presence, your countenance had to be Smiling. You had to be joyful. You could not be downcast, nor could you go to the king and address him unless he first addressed you. So Nehemiah could not go to the Persian king and say, Oh, king, would you let me go to Jerusalem? Because that meant certain death. That's how much the king was revered. Now, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He had position in the Persian court there. And so he prays, God, give me favor with this man. Four months pass by. He continues his prayer. He continues waiting. And then one day in the presence of the Persian king, the king addresses him. And he says, why do you look so sad? Now, that's cause for death. And Nehemiah tells him that he would like to go to Jerusalem. He'd like to build up the walls that his people are in danger and disgrace. And would the king ever so graciously allow him to go? And astoundingly, the king says, well, how long would you be gone? And Nehemiah says, oh, just a short while, as long as it takes to build the walls. The king gives him permission to go, unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. And not only that, Nehemiah asked for letters of safe passage. He asked for letters of recommendation. And he asked for some supplies to build the walls and the gate up. And guess what? The king grants them all. God's hand was in all of it. 
But I believe it was because this man had a heart for the work. He wasn't just an interested party. He wasn't someone who just heard the, the news and said, well, okay, I'll throw a prayer up now and again, and I'll, you know, I'll kind of get behind it a little bit. But, uh, I mean, he, this guy, man was behind it. He had a vision for God's kingdom. And God moved powerfully in the heart of the king of Persia. Proverbs 21 tells us that the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Isn't that encouraging? Absolutely. There's so much that can happen when people get serious about the kingdom, when people get serious about prayer, when people get serious about God's purposes. We are blessed with the curse of wealth. Do you know that in our country? We are blessed with the curse of abundance. There is so much around us that eats away at our time and our energy and our resources that we barely have time to make it to church. Have you ever found that to be true? So, oh man, I got to get. Uh, I got these things to do. I can't get to church. Or, I, I can't. I haven't been to many church in about six weeks. I got to go because I've had all these other things I had to get done. Oh, I meant to get up and go pray this morning, but I had these other things I had to be attended to. Are you with me? You hear what I'm saying? I mean, this is nothing new, right? This is nothing new. We all we all face this. Every single one of us. This man has a heart for the work. In chapter 2, verse 11, Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He had not told anyone. He had a vision, and he's going to seek out now. He's been in Jerusalem three days, and he goes out this third night, and he's going to survey the damage to the wall. You read the rest of the account, and he moves around the wall, and in some places he has to actually get off his horse and walk through because the rubble and everything is such a mess. He had a vision. Some four years ago, God gave me a vision, a vision for this church and a vision for the kingdom here. He gave me a goal to work towards. He didn't speak to me audibly, but he gave me a goal. He gave me a, a figure to work towards in terms of growing this congregation, growing this church. When the transition between Ralph Moore and I took place, as Ralph left after pastoring this church for 12 years, and this next month, May, I will have been the pastor five years officially. Amazing, we're still here. Amen. Still here. <laughs> Testimony to God's grace. Right. We had an average weekend attendance of some 1,200 people. We have mushroomed to well over 2,000 people on an average weekend. Over a year ago, we were, we were pushing 2,400 people. We planted about seven or eight churches in the last year and a half. 
and that depleted our ranks some. But we are at a place of sociological strangulation. What does that mean? Well, it means you can't get any more people in here. Well, you look around and see a lot of empty chairs. This is Saturday night. There's some 300 people in here tonight. This congregation is bigger than 95% of the churches in America. Do you know that? This service alone. This service alone is, is numbered in the top 1% of the churches in America in terms of attendance. 300 people. Saturday night is not exactly your prime hour for attending church, is it? Yeah. For some people. <laughs> Debbie, for some people it is, yes. <laughs> but I mean, this congregation keeps growing. How many were here when we first started the Saturday night service? A, f- a handful of you. It was just a few people right in the front. And week after week, year after year, it continues to grow. It's astounding. We have five weekend services, not counting Sunday night. But you see, we're limited in terms of a couple of things. Our parking and our children's facility. If more people would carpool, we'd get more people in the building. If we use buses, we get more people in the building. But we have a parking problem. And now, uh, there's, a, there's even going to be restrictions in terms of the number of people we can fit in the building if we don't have enough adequate parking places. So we've got some dilemmas. And so my question to God was, well, God, if you want this many people, we're going to have to do something here. And he said, yes, I know. <laughs> and we've been on this incredible up-and-down pilgrimage. Most of you have been along for the ride with us. You know what I'm talking about. You say, well, are you sure God said 5,000 people? I went back and reevaluated that. I was thumbing through some old church council minutes about three or four years prior to my taking over from Ralph as the pastor of Hope Chapel. And as I was thumbing through the old minutes, my eyes hit upon one minuted item in which Ralph and the church council had been praying that God would grow this church to 5,000 people by the end of the decade, 1980s. And I saw that, and I, my jaw dropped, and I went, whoa. Okay, God, I won't question you anymore. So God has given us a vision, just like he gave Nehemiah a vision. And Nehemiah surveys the scene. We've surveyed the scene. There's much work to be done. Follow along with me. In verse 17, after he has surveyed the walls, the condition of them, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. If you closely survey the need of our church, you will see the trouble we're in. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission, as I believe we're called to fill it, unless we expand our tent, unless we get more room, unless we get certainly more parking, more places to put cars. That's a primary concern right now. 
He said, do you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, he says, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And so he urges the people now to participate in the building up of the wall, which is symbolic of the building up of the kingdom. I want you to notice their reply. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Now, whenever the people of God say, let's arise and build. As I said earlier, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. And God allows it for a number of reasons. And we have had terrific opposition from all quarters. And I want to show you some of the opposition in Nehemiah's case, and you can make some parallels. Verse 19, as soon as the people arise to begin to do the work, Sanballat the Horite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now remember, these men and, and their peoples had been ruling the land and living in the land while the Israelites were off in captivity for that 70 years. And then when they'd come back, the people had rebuilt the temple, they'd rebuilt parts of the city of Jerusalem, but they never rebuilt the wall. And so they were always still at the mercy of these outside nations. And these outside nations claimed the land for themselves. Just like Satan claims this land for himself. He claims people for himself. Jesus says an astounding thing in the 11th chapter of Matthew. He says, the kingdom of God is taken hold of by forceful men. People who are intense about the kingdom. People who aren't full of nonsense. And when there's opposition, we know where the opposition is coming from, and yet we are determined that by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we are going to overcome the enemy. We're going to overcome the, the opposition. So they get some opposition. And notice that Nehemiah appeals to his confidence in God. God is for us. And it's by God that we're going to overcome. Now the whole of chapter 3 is a catalog of all the people who worked on the wall. And if you read it closely, you see that the people came from all different parts of the Jewish society of the day. No one was exempt. A few people tried to get out of the work, but most everybody was involved. And they worked on it section by section by section. They started at the sheep gate, they worked all the way around and came back to the sheep gate. And they built the wall up. Well, let's hear about how it happened in the process. Chapter 4. It says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. So now, no longer is he ridiculing the Jews, but now he is angry. He's threatening. He's incensed. 
He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, uh, what they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Now notice Nehemiah's response. He turns again to prayer and hard work. Let me say that again. He turns to prayer and hard work. Not prayer alone, nor hard work alone. What did he turn to? Prayer and hard work. Watch what he says. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall. They started working, and they worked hard. But notice something in verse 6. We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. Now guess what happens now? More opposition. You get started. Don't people start so great? They're all revved up, and they're going at it, and all of a sudden you get halfway there or a portion of the way there, and you begin to run out of steam. The enthusiasm begins to wane. Anybody relate to that? We had a three-year commitment, financial commitment, made by great numbers of people some four years ago. Halfway through, a number of people ran out of steam. I hope you weren't one of them. The Bible says, keep your vows. If you make a vow to the Lord, you best keep it. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, and for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they became very angry. The opposition starts really heating up at this point. You see that? They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Isn't this interesting how all these various peoples who were natural enemies amongst themselves, they all managed to band together and come against the people of God. Beloved, we see the same thing happening in our culture today. All of the religions and all the groups, all the philosophies are really banding together under this banner of New Age. And you know what they're targeting? Christianity. They say, if we can wipe out Christianity, we've got it made. The same things that went on then are going on today. And if we are not awake as a church, if we're not vigorous as a church, if we're not praying as a people of God, the walls will not be built and we will be despised and disgraced. You with me? I hope so. You have kids. Your kids' futures are really at stake. I got an eight-year-old little boy. Hardly any of the kids that he knows around our neighborhood know who Jesus Christ is, except that he would be telling them. Astounding to me, the godlessness of our society. 
They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, verse 8, and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. They were alert. They prayed and they were alert to post a guard. They didn't sit back passively and, and just let them overrun the work. Now look at this, verse 10. When opposition heats up, when the work is well into, this always happens. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Oh, it's too tough. There's too much work. We're running out of strength. We're running out of energy. Where is that coming from? There's opposition from without, and now the opposition is coming from within to stop the work. You know who's behind all that opposition? Satan. He does not want the kingdom of God to go forward. He does not want God glorified. He does not want the church built up. He's going to use every possible tactic to stop the work. Every tactic. Beloved, you must have spiritual eyes to see in that spiritual realm what's going on. The spiritual realm is more real than this visible temporal earthly realm. Because this realm is going to pass away. It's going to all burn up. We've got to have spiritual eyes to see what's going on. And so discouragement hits inside the camp, and we've had that. I've experienced great discouragement over our building program. People have come to me because we've not made any progress. They've come and they said, gosh, maybe it's not God's will for us to grow. I said, don't you dare say that. We have a mandate to advance the kingdom, do we not? And there are too many passive pastors, too many passive churches who are not aggressively, powerfully taking hold of the kingdom and advancing it. Discouragement hits, you need to know where it's coming from. And when you hear it in the context, in the home, in the inside of the church, you turn to that person and says, No, no, the enemy is sifting you right now. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me. Verse 11 Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. So they were scared. Not only were they discouraged, they were scared about the threats from the outside. Beloved, we've got to be single-minded. I get up every day and I say, God, this is your day. Every day, Lord, I want to serve you with my whole heart today. I don't always do it, but that's the intention of my heart. And God is training me and teaching me to be more and more and more each day single-minded for His kingdom. 
You say, well, that's all right for you, but you're a pastor. I mean, you're supposed to do that. <laughs> We're all supposed to do it. This time tonight's a pep talk for you to get back out on the field in the next half and go get them. Go get them. Give them heaven. I mean, really give them heaven. And don't let anybody or anything stop you from giving them heaven. But the people are scared. The work is slowing down. It's halfway there, and they're, they're really discouraged. Now look at this, verse 12. And then the Jews who live near them... Now we have visibility of people who are friendly with the world. These Jews are the ones who live near Sanballat. They live near Tobiah. They're friendly with the world. These guys come along who are just like the people who are peripheral in our church, who come along and they really don't have a heart for the work. They haven't caught vision. They don't see the kingdom the same way you see it. But they're very friendly with the world, and they say, well, you know, maybe we better not upset the apple cart. Maybe we better not cause any trouble. (laughs) Now look at this. They told us ten times over. Isn't that interesting? Ten times over they told us, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Notice there he says, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. We're going to get persecuted if you make waves. And then Jeremiah says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall and exposed the places posting them by families, their swords and spears and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them! Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for the next generation. You see what he's saying? That's what God has said to us. He says, fight for the next generation. We have an incredibly growing youth ministry and our children's church is jammed with kids. The whole next generations of Christians in the South Bay. Isn't that exciting? And it's up to you and I to fight for them. He posts all the people with weapons, and they they go on and they complete the work of building the wall, but each man has a weapon as his land mortar. As we go on with the work, we carry out our weapons. You know what those weapons are? Ephesians chapter 6. We're involved in spiritual warfare, beloved, and Paul gives us the weapons to use as we put on God's armor. The sword of the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. Righteousness. People of truth. Not people who are passive and timid and disobedient. You remember the account of Joshua? I mean, if you read the Old Testament, it's over and over and over. 
It's God's kingdom moving, taking more territory, taking more ground. Joshua, do you remember the famous account? They were getting ready to move into the promised land for so long it had been promised. And now they're on the very verge to get to move in and take the land. Jericho was the first city. They obeyed God right down to the last detail. He told them, you take Jericho this way. And they did it exactly as he said. Didn't vary one little iota. And on that last day when they shouted, the walls came down and they took Jericho just as God said they would. The next city on the agenda was Ai. Little tiny hill town. Hardly worth even noticing, but it was the next one to be taken. They figured we can do this with our eyes closed. They sent a little... Small troops up there, small number of troops up to AI. And they got roundly wiped out. And Joshua falls on his face and says, Oh God, God, why has this happened? God says, Get up. I'll tell you why it's happened. There's sin in the camp. Somebody disobeyed me. And then begins the long process of searching out the sin. You know the account in chapter 7 of Joshua, it's Achan. Stole a little bit of stuff and hid it in his tent and figured no one would know. Huh? <laughs> Who would miss a few ounces of silver? It's the principle of the thing. It's the principle of the thing. And beloved, I'm convinced, for lack of prayer, serious, fervent, wholehearted prayer, and because there is sin in the camp, we have been stymied. We have been stymied. And so I would appeal to you. If there is sin in your life, put it away. If you're a Christian, count yourself a slave to Jesus Christ. A slave to obedience, a slave to righteousness. Take off the old grave clothes. Discard them. Get serious about your walk with Christ. So that we can rebuild the walls. In chapter 5, he goes on and he talks about further opposition from within the camp, how he deals with it, how the people repent of their sin and they get straight and they get right before God. He goes on through chapter 6, there were direct attacks on Nehemiah, on his character, Anything that the enemy could do to stop the work. And there have been attacks on me, on my character. Comments have been made, and in Nehemiah, in, indeed, in the latter part of chapter 5, declares to the people that he is above reproach. It has been said of me that this building program is for my own ego. I can understand in the light of some of the recent developments in the Christian world how someone might think that. But if you don't know me, then don't make those remarks. 
because Satan is using you as a divisive individual. I have no personal interest in this business other than that it glorify the Father. I never asked for this job. I didn't seek it. If you were around at the time I took over, you know what I'm talking about. We need a consensus in our church. We need a consensus in our church about the kingdom of God and about our need to pray and work hard to expand the kingdom. Beloved, you and I must grow spiritually. We must put His purposes first. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, He said, the next thing you pray, after you praise and glorify your fathers in heaven, then you say, your kingdom come and your will be done. That's the priority. We must have a consensus. If we have no consensus, when Nehemiah turned to the people and he said, let's go, they said, yes, let's do it. He had a consensus. And even when we have a consensus, there's going to be opposition. And we must quick, be quick to recognize where the opposition is coming from and why it's there. And not be timid about addressing it. Be fervent in our prayers. Oh God, go before us. Make your way straight. Strengthen your servants. And we must repent of sin. We cannot be friendly with the world, the world's ways. We can't live as part of this world. We're citizens of another country. We're passing through, brothers and sisters. We're passing through. We're to be salt and light here. We're to make a difference here. We're not a subculture. We are a counterculture. And a counterculture always draws the ire of the majority. We cannot be timid to draw the ire of this culture. Unless you're being persecuted, you're not a viable witness for Jesus Christ. Unless you're being persecuted, you are not a viable witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a friend of this world. We need a consensus. Without a consensus, we go nowhere. Unless we rise up as one body and say, we're following you, Lord, we ain't going nowhere. Like we haven't gone anywhere for four years. Anybody ever saved for anything? Saved for a new dress or car or a house or something? We're saving for a house. We're saving for a house. We're trusting by faith. You say, well, gosh, we, you know, we, we haven't seen anything happen. Doesn't matter. We're saving for a house and we're walking by faith and we're growing up spiritually and God's going to give us the house. But we've got to be ready to move when he gives it to us. Mm 
I don't know where that house is going to be. I don't know what it's going to include. I have some hopes and some ideas and some dreams. So do you. But I don't know where it's going to be. But we're saving for a house. Any of you who have ever bought a house, you know what it's like. You start saving. You want a house. Your family's getting bigger. You need more bathrooms. <laughs> you need a bigger garage. You gotta have a couple extra bedrooms for Aunt Tilly when she comes over and brings all of her cats. <laughs> so we're saving for a newer house, a bigger house. When you were saving for your house, you went out and you looked here, you looked there, you, the whole place. You didn't know where your house was gonna be. You had some ideas of where you'd like it to be, but you didn't know where it was gonna be, but you kept saving. You kept saving because you knew that day that that house opened up, you wanted to be ready, right? And you were single-minded about it, weren't you? I mean, you need beans and potatoes to put away those couple dollars extra. You're single-minded. I want to call you to a commitment. I'm going to be talking to you more about this in the coming weeks, but I want to tell you right now, on June 12th, that weekend, I want to call our congregation to a one-year financial commitment. Many of us have come out of three years of scrimping and sacrificing very really. I can tell you horror stories of things that people went through that they were not able to accomplish in their own personal lives because they were faithful to the commitment that God called them to. This is over and above regular tithes and offerings. Hopefully you'll all be tithing. A one-year sacrificial commitment. One year. In that one year, I'm praying that we will have a consensus like we've never seen before. And that God would bring us whatever is necessary in terms of funding, and he had opened the doors. When we give our money to God sacrificially, that's when we can be pretty assured that God has our heart. Paul tells the Corinthian church that the Macedonians gave, but before they gave, out of their abundance of poverty, they first gave themselves to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to Paul and they gave out of the abundance of their poverty. We're not going to move ahead until we have a consensus in our church. Nehemiah couldn't move until he had a consensus of the people. That consensus came through prayer and repentance and good old hard work. And people with a vision for the kingdom of God. I want you to look at one more passage about what he says. And it's the 15th verse of chapter 6. He says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 
And when all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, our enemies lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Isn't that wonderful? We're called to be a light in this community. It's my prayer daily that God not take away our lampstand, that we continue to be a light in this community. But He's not going to continue to allow us to be a light unless we get serious about His kingdom, unless we're willing to sacrifice. So I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray like you've never prayed. Oh God, show me, lead me, speak to my heart. Give me a vision for your kingdom. Give me a hunger for your purposes. And Lord, prepare me to give of my financial substance sacrificially. Not conveniently, sacrificially for one year. One year. When David was going to build the temple, a piece of land was offered to him, and he says in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, Aruna was going to give him the land, and David said, no, I want to buy it. I want to pay top dollar. He says, for I will offer no sacrifice to my God that costs me nothing. If we have not a consensus, we go nowhere. And we pull back and we stagnate. If we don't continue growing, this church will die. And it'll become just like all the other churches that many of you have come from that cease to grow and cease to have a vision and a hunger for the kingdom. God will remove the lampstand. He's promised to do that. So I leave it to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray with Nehemiah that you would go before us, that you would rebuke the enemy, and Lord, that you'd stir this great people. Father, you convict us of our sin, of our unrighteousness, that we might put it off, that we might have no more to do with it, that we no longer just fiddle around in the kingdom. Lord, we need a powerful outpouring. We need a powerful visitation of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, bless us, I pray. Strengthen us in every respect. That we might live our lives for your great glory and your kingdom and your purposes. Lord, you might say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servants. We love you tonight, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, fill us now, I pray. We worship you. And we submit to you.
for Christ's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen.